Good morning, everybody. I just got to tell you, it's great to be with me today. So cool. I can't believe I get to be here two weeks in a row. I must have won the lottery because you guys, for those of you who don't know me well, the people that do know me well know that I always brag that Clinton Township is my favorite group of people on planet Earth. I love, absolutely love being here and love celebrating today. And I think I especially have enjoyed last week and this week, even though it's a very intense series that we're in called Mastermind, where we're talking about mental health and the way our minds work. And here's the reason why. When I grew up, I grew up in a church where nobody ever shared personal weaknesses or problems. Everybody was living in a world where we were trying to pretend they didn't exist. So you just kind of cover that up. And so, and, and, uh, and this is true around the world when I travel around the world. Pastors tell me, if I shared my personal struggles, I'd lose my church or I'd lose my job. And I thought, isn't Satan clever that he gets us to hide? And we create, and when the church should be a place where we don't hide. And last week, we talked about that. We showed where Jesus, his own struggles, his own honesty and vulnerability. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, oh my goodness, talking about the comfort and talking about the struggle. Uh, Paul even said that he was under such great pressure, he didn't even know if he could survive. It was even maybe some theologians think he might have even been considering suicide. He was at such wit's end in his life. This is a real problem. And so this series to me is a great honor because it's to say, let's be real. Let's struggle. So last week, if you were here, you heard me talk about a lot of my own internal struggles, struggles with my family, the fact that of engaging with my children and brothers and sisters and realizing that we are all in this journey together. And it's a, and it's a hard one that God somehow uses. Now, I just want to remind you that two weeks ago, uh, we talked about the amazing nature of the brain, the fact that we have 70,000, about 70,000 thoughts a day a, a person will think. Do you, you remember that? Or you forgot that thought? Okay, yeah, good. Maybe that was 70,001. But the truth of it is, our brains have 100 billion neurons that have 500 trillion points of interaction in our brain through our synapses. This, see this little pinhead right here? Too small for my body. It's a powerful brain. In fact, do you know how much, do you know how much information data your brain can store? Does anybody remember that one? A quadru quadrillion bytes, or 10 to the 15th power. All the, uh, all the information that's stored on the internet is stored on about a quadrillion bytes. That's how much your brain has. Somebody say, whoa. It's incredible, isn't it? That's why the psalmist says in the, in the Old Testament, it says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And so I want to just remind you, because this is so important, is to say to you, you do have the capacity to think about what you think. We're not completely at the whim of our thoughts. We can direct our thoughts. We can open up and change our thoughts. I have a. I read the Moravian, M-O-R-A-V-I-A-N, the Moravian Bible text comes to my iPhone every morning at 5.05. And I, the first thing that I try to read in the morning is biblical passages at the Moravian text. The Moravians were a Christian group out of Europe, and for hundreds of years, they've been reading the Bible daily. It's an incredible movement. But I, I want to start the day with the Word of God, with the Bible speaking into my life. 
Because that's going to affect the way I think about it. That's different than if I wake up with my phone and, and I scroll to my news feed, which I haven't even looked at today. And let's see, let's see, what is, what is my first thing on my news feed? I'm not getting it. Good, the Lord didn't want me to get it today. But the point was, oh yeah, Sondland acted at Trump's behest. So it's all about the impeachment of the president. Um, the next thing is, um, all, there's some, some good news, but so much bad news. It just, it just inundates me. So it affects my thoughts. How am I thinking? How am I engaging with optimism in the world? The second thing I want you to remember is to ask yourself, what direction are your thoughts taking you? Because we have the ability to be observers and gatekeepers of our thoughts. You ever going through the day and you ever, raise your hand if you've ever said this about yourself. I am so stupid. You ever said that? I, I bet you it's 100%. Guys, that is a great thing to stop saying. Because you're not stupid. Your brain holds 10 to the 15th power of a quadrillion bytes of data can be stored in your brain. You're not stupid. That's a lie. And I think there are things that are so defeating. Instead of saying, wow, maybe I'd like to learn more. You can turn, neg turn negative thoughts into positive thoughts. That's what I love for here. When, when, if you can survive this sermon today, if you can make it to the end of this sermon, our musical team has the most fantastic presentation at the end of the service. You're going to hear it, and you're going to go, okay, that's one of the most inspiring, beautiful things I've heard in a long time. So, don't leave. Because that music that you're going to hear is going to inform your thoughts this week. The music and the encouragement that you're going to remember from these, this music is going to be a gatekeeper to your heart. Last week, we talked about how the church has been silent on the topic of mental health, the difficulty of suicide, of, of people losing their lives by suicide. And this is, is such a big deal. And we, want to, we, want to, we want to be straight. We want people who are struggling with every form of mental challenge to come here and be loved and encouraged and to be able to share their fears. Because there's something about speaking something out loud that takes some of the sting away from it. We also did this, and I hope you'll remember this. Suffering reveals things uh, that things aren't as they should be, but it doesn't say that God isn't with me. And here's what I want to say to you. Of all the things I've learned in my life, the thing that has convinced me most personally that Jesus is with me has been suffering. If I hadn't, and I've suffered very little, most of you in this room have probably suffered way more than I have, but when I have suffered in my life, it's been the catalyst to realize his care in my heart. It's something for you to think about. The last thing we talked about last week is not only that you're not alone, but the pro God's promise is not the elimination of sin and sufferings. Like, no, I kind of, uh, there are some Christian groups out there that like, if you believe in God, you're going to have lots of money and everything's going to be great and every sickness is going to vanish from your life. You know what I want to say to that? That's absurd. That's absurd. Because you know what? We live in a broken world. And people are, people are going to get sick and people are going to struggle. Limbs that get knocked off in accidents don't grow back. Now, there may be incidents where people report, but I'm saying we live in a world where God says, sometimes I heal, sometimes I don't. 
We do not understand why. But God's promise is not perfection. You with me? His promise is his presence. That's what friendship and relationship is all about. There's an amazing uh, times in my life when I've been with my kids or my grandkids or with my spouse or, or with great friends to say what it's all about is relationship. Do you know that since Kensington started and we started traveling globally and I started doing stuff, do you know that one of my commitments was that I never travel alone? I'm always traveling with people and, and try to be connected with people. The only exception, like I did a day trip to Columbus to work with one of the church planting movements that we're a part of, the collegiate uh, church movement among college campuses, and I went down there for a shark tank, but everybody down there were the guys that I have been working with the last 15 years. But, but, but the point is to be in life and to be in relationship. Don't be alone. And I shared last week, I said, don't be alone with your finances. Have, some, have people that, that help you and support you. I have people that know how many calories a, a day I eat. Because I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone in my battle to maintain my weight and to maintain health and to live as long and healthy a life as I can. I have a, I have a good friend that knows when I stop and buy a Starbucks coffee or if I make a tremendous tactical error and go to Tim Hortons instead. <laughs> he knows. I have uh, the elders of this church totally have my life in their hands in terms of how long I lead and what I do and how I serve here. It's not, it's not my decision. It's beautiful to be in relationship with people. And so today, I want to just move us one last step. And Patrick Holt has done a great job in this series, and I've loved the interviews. I, what I want us to do today is I want us to uh, see Dr. Carter, because Dr. Carter is going to just take a few minutes to talk about how do we step in helping other people when we are concerned about the people that we love? Like, what are the things we should do and shouldn't do? Because all of us have insecurities, in engaging in helpful and meaningful ways. Is that not true? How many of us, besides me, feel insecure when you're trying to wonder if you're going to help another person with things they're struggling with? Does anybody feel insecure? Okay. Okay, some of you aren't raising your hands. You should be insecure. I thought that was going to be funnier, but it wasn't. I mean, because it's complex. When I realized that my son was having suicidal thoughts with his life, I was completely surprised by that. And when he shared it with me, I was completely unprepared. What do, you, what do you say to people you love? That's why for us to be the church where we're encouraging each other, we're not pointing fingers, but we're lifting each other up is an absolutely incredible way to do it. So here's what I want to do. I want Dr. Carter to talk about some practical ways. And then I want to talk about the Apostle Paul and his own struggles and how Jesus met him in those struggles. And I think there's connection points, certainly for me and for you, of how God wants to meet us at these places. And when we see how God meets us, we can do the same thing for other people. So, is that good, Dr. Carter? And then Paul and Jesus, okay? You with me? All right, so let's do it. Let's do Dr. Carter. As we get ready to do that, we're going to receive our offering. And I want to say, man, thank you so much for those of you that are giving faithfully. Uh, I think of being in this room and the faithful partnership with so many people. I also want to say the job is far from done. We have an unbelievable mission left here and in the world. And so your giving is a catalyst for that, and it means a great deal. If you're visiting with us today, you're certainly welcome 
uh, to let the offering go by. We'd love for you to connect at the info table. And I want to remind as the offering's coming, I also want to remind everybody our care table is out there. We have all kinds of ways to give care to people. A lot of you went there last week, but they're out there. And if you're, you have questions about someone that you want to help or something you're struggling with, the care table's out there. Please take advantage of it. So let's see Dr. Carter. Dr. Carter, thank you again for joining us today. I appreciate you being with us. I know over the last few weeks, we've been talking about our brain, our mind, mental health, and last week we really worked to remove some of the stigma uh, that's around this idea. Um, but today we want to talk a little bit about, like, personally, how do we navigate this with people that we love? So I know for me, like, when it comes to people that I love and people that I know that are in my life that might be struggling when it comes to mental health, I don't always know what to say, but I know that I want to say the right things, and I know that I want to be helpful. And so just to kick things off, what would you say to that, and, and how can we come alongside of our family and friends who are walking that journey? The first thing I would say is thank you. Um, as a mental health professional, um, I know that social support plays a huge role in the healing process for my clients. And so anytime they have good support, it just facilitates how well they do in therapy. Um, I'm only with these people an hour a week, right? So I only get to see my client for an hour, and then the rest of the time they're off in the world. And so knowing that they have loved ones, they have a supportive community behind them, I think is really um, refreshing to know and, and encouraging to know. So thank you um, for that. And I would also say, make sure you're taking care of yourself. Um, caregiver burnout is real. Um, and it, it does no good to yourself or the person that you're trying to care for if you never take time to replenish yourself. Um, so get into a good self-care routine. Again, um, taking care of your mind, your body, your spirit. And if necessary, go to therapy yourself if you need some additional support. Um, there's also uh, support groups out there for family members, for people who have um, mental health problems. So you can get together and share ideas, share re resources. Uh, if you can't find one, maybe you can create one, you know, even in your own church. Realistically, what does it actually look like to provide support and care when oftentimes we may not understand the fullness of what somebody is working through? There's a lot of listening, I think. Listening and asking questions, trying not to make assumptions. Um, really... Ultimately, you're building relationship. You know, even though the person you're caring for may be your own child, maybe your spouse, um, it's a different type of relationship when you're talking about mental health. You know, because that's something so personal and and so um, sensitive for some people. And so you're really trying to meet them where they are and move from there. So, um, for example, people who have depression, for some of them, it's really hard to leave the house. And so coming out to, you know, have coffee or go to the movies is not something that they're necessarily going to do. But if you offer to come over there, bring dinner, have a movie, you know, just relax with them, they may be more willing to do something like that. Um, teenagers. Teenagers spend a lot of time in their rooms, particularly if they're depressed or anxious. Parents have the tendency to want to, you know, hey, come on down, let's have dinner, or let's watch the show. Meeting very well, you know, good intentions. But um, for the teenager, that's just their room is their comfort place. And so maybe the, the solution is for you to go to them, you know, hey, can I sit and watch, you know, Netflix with you in your room? Or can I listen to music? And you don't have to say much, you know, I don't have to say anything, really. You know, again, just being present with them makes a big difference. Also, um, sometimes caring for people is doing the hard things. 
And so if you have a child, um, for example, who is having some suicidal thoughts, you have to get that child to the hospital. Um, a lot of parents sometimes will just say, well, I, I can watch them, you know, I'll put all the, the pills away and the knives away and it'll be okay. Um, but if your child really wants to hurt themselves, they need to be in the care of mental health professionals who can, who can tend to them and get them stable uh, emotionally. Same thing with addictions, you know, taking a person to the rehab facility is a difficult thing to do, but it's a necessary step for their healing. And so sometimes, you know, really being there for them and caring for them is doing things that are really challenging. When it comes to that, what are some other cautions that you would have in terms of approach when you're coming alongside of somebody? What are some other potentially harmful things that could be said or that could be done? I think difficult conversations need to take place in the context of a healthy relationship. So the first thing I would ask is, are you the right person to have that conversation? Um, if you're if you're typically someone who, you know, maybe you get into arguments a lot with this person or there's a power struggle or, um, you know, this person just typically doesn't take your advice anyway, you know, right, <laughs> you right. may not be the right person <laughs> to bring this up, you know. <laughs> sure. right. um, maybe there's someone who has a more uh, intimate relationship with that individual who would be better suited to have that conversation um, or the two of you together can meet with that person to have that conversation. Um, I also would avoid the uh, ambush approach. Um, right. <laughs> you know, we don't need to have interventions. I, sure. I think that can feel very alarming right. to an individual to walk into a room and there's like five or six people there to talk about their mental health. You know, sure. that's, that's stressful. Right. Um, and so you want to make sure that you let the person know ahead of time, hey, I'd like to talk to you about a few things. You know, is there a time when we can sit down and meet? And you want to make sure there's no distractions. You can talk uninterrupted. Um, and really get across the points that you want to say. Also, uh, you don't want to assume that you know what's happening with the person. You want to ask them what's going on. You know, share their obs your observations as well. For example, you might say, you know, I haven't noticed that you've been spending a lot of time with us. You're kind of withdrawn from us. And, and I'm wondering if we could talk more about why that is, what's going on. Instead of saying, you haven't been spending time with us, I think you're depressed. Sure. Right? You're making an assumption about what's going on with that individual instead of opening up a conversation to discuss what is actually happening. That's great. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for thank being you. with us. Thank you so much. She's, uh, she's been a real blessing to us in just thinking about how to, almost how to engage with people without being weirded out yourself as you're stepping into those questions. Because I think these practical ways of engaging really make a huge difference. And I want to just emphasize the one point, is when you're communicating with people out of context of wanting to have a relationship, not, not fixing, over-fixing, or controlling, because I think... <clears throat> I think when we really love people and the people we love the most are in trouble, we panic. Is that not true? We panic. We think, oh, i got to fix them. Well, how how's that work so far? Anybody want to share a fix-it story? It doesn't work. But being in a relationship does work. It creates hope and it creates movement. And that's what I want to talk about Paul today because Paul was a man of unbelievable achievement. He was multilingual. He was the guy that really moved the church into the Roman Greek world uh, after Jesus' resurrection. He had unbelievable suffering all along the way. He lost everything to follow Christ. And yet he, his faith remained really, really strong. And 
But there was one big criticism of him by other Christians, and that was, Paul, you know, we're talking about the victory that we have in Christ, but you're always talking about your weaknesses. You're this weak, pitiful little guy. And so people were real critical of him. So Paul, in the book of Corinthians, second book of Corinthians, speaks to that a lot. He says, what does it mean to be weak? And so he goes off on this riff at the end of the second book of uh, Corinthians, second Corinthians, and he talks about all the things he suffered, shipwreck, uh, being whipped nearly to death with, with, with whips, um, being stoned and left for dead, of being uh, chased in the country, being, being kidnapped, being thrown into prison, uh, being falsely accused. He's like, all of these incredible things. And he's saying, none of this destroyed me. And then he gets to the verses that I want to share with you this morning. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, Conceited about what? About the fact that, hey, I've fought a pretty good fight for God. Like I could be proud of all that I've overcome. So, but God wasn't going to let him get conceited. He said, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, interesting, I didn't, I didn't make this clear in the first service. The thorn appears to come not from God, but from Satan. That God allows Satan to give Paul this certain kind of torment. And there's some things that you need to know about the original language in this story. First of all, this word conceited means to simply exalt yourself. It's about pride. If any of you ever are able to travel with me through the Roman Greek world and kind of expose that culture, you'll find that in Roman and Greek mythology and most of the philosophies of the world, do you know what is the root sin at the cause of every human problem? It's pride. It's not greed or lust or what. At, at the underlying cause, when you read, read these world philosophies, pride is underneath that. And so Paul knows that could be a problem that could stop him from really knowing the goodness of God in his life. So he says, I don't want to succumb to the pride. So God, if I understand this correctly, allows Satan to give Paul this thorn. Now, in our culture, whenever we think of thorn, we think of the thorns on a rose stem. Is that what you think of? Well, if you ever go to Israel with me and you see a, a thorn you see a thorn over there, it's usually about this long and the tip of it's sharp as a razor. You could kill somebody with it. And the actual meaning of this word thorn could, could, is the same word that we use, use the word stake. Like think of your favorite vampire movie. This is supposed to be funny. This is the part where you laugh now. Think of your favorite vampire movie, and you get the hammer, and they're getting ready to drive the stake into the heart of the vampire. See that stake? Paul's saying that he was given a stake to torment him. And this word torment literally means to, to beat someone with your fists, which I'm so old now that if I hit anybody, my hand would probably break. But imagine a young guy here. You could imagine you're just hitting someone fiercely in the face with blows. That's what this word torment means. So Paul is saying, I've got this terrible stake, this destroyer in my life. And you know what it's doing? Instead of killing me, it's destroying all my pride. You say, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to have mental health issues. I don't want to be weak. 
Nobody does. But guess what that does for all of us? It actually makes us human. The worst people in the world are people what? That overwhelm other people with pride and self-sufficiency. But people that have been broken know how to love. They, we learn how to love. We learn how to care. We learn how to, to listen to each other in this journey. And Paul's saying, I am a church planner. I believe in the risen Jesus. Jesus has changed my life. My sins are forgiven. But I want to tell you, I'm hurting like everybody else. And it's what I love about this. So what was the thorn? What was Paul's thorn? What do you think? Nobody knows. And that's why I love it. Because everybody in this room's got a different thorn. Some of you have addictions that have controlled your life, that have been a thorn in your flesh. Some of you, you've been battling uh, alcoholism and all the influences on his life. Others of you have found yourself medicating with drugs that have controlled your life. Others of you have let lust run wild in your life and have destroyed, and you've used it to destroy yourself, destroy other people. For some of you, it's greed. For some of you, it's dark depression. For some of you, it's a bipolar problem or a manic depression that hits you. It could be a million things, and Paul is not saying what his is because he wants you to know that he identifies with you. He knows your struggles. Just like Jesus, Paul writes in Corinthians, was tested and tempted in every way we were. There's no temptation you'll ever face. Jesus has not already felt it. You ever thought about taking your life? Jesus thought that too. Paul certainly thought it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. There is no temptation you that other people are not going to feel and struggle with at some point in their lives. And so guess what Paul does? Verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Take it away. Make it easier. I can remember in, in the years where my kids rebel, and I'm like, Lord, I do whatever it takes if you just take care of my kids. You ever anybody ever prayed that prayer? Okay, you're lying. You guys, it's a it's a sin to lie in church. You can lie as soon as you leave. No, it's terrible. It's ridiculous. What I'm saying is we all make deals with God. Because we ache for the people that we love. And this is incredible. Hold my call, Mr. President. The, Paul's the word pleading, this was a shock to me this week as I was studying in, 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 the, in the Greek New Testament. The word plead is the same word that we used last week where the word parakaleo, it means to come alongside. It's literally Paul is saying, Jesus, would you come alongside me in this problem and take it? And take the burden of it. Like, like in uh, Matthew, Matthew writes, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's like be yoked in a yoke with Jesus. Jesus and you pulling the yoke together. That's what he's saying. He's saying like, come alongside of me. But Paul's saying, come alongside and take the pressure off me. That's the same word, root word for the word of the, the Holy Spirit is the paraclesis. He's the, he's, the, he's the one who comes alongside. Paul is pleading for God to come alongside him. It is fascinating to me. And I thought, I've prayed that prayer so many times. I've been in this posture where I'm, when there were times with my kids and times in my marriage and times with Kensington and times when I had chronic back pain where I'd be flat on my face on the ground. I'm like, Jesus, you got to show up because I'm weak and I hate being weak and I'm angry at you because I'm weak. And I'm weak because I can't fix it. But guess what happens? 
That's the point where we're ready to learn of what God brings to the table. Verse 9. So he's saying with the Lord, to Jesus, take this for me. And Jesus says to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay. Now you can read all the language of the world, all the written materials and religious materials of the world. This is one of those things you're never going to read anything like this. You're just not. It's not out there. Jesus is saying, in your weakness is my opportunity to be strong in you. Because if you were strong without Jesus, what would you be? Good, you can answer out loud. What do you think you'd be? You'd, you wouldn't need him. You'd be self-sufficient. You'd be proud. But when you're weak and Jesus uses you, you just kind of go like, Somebody asked me about all these 29-plus years at Kensington. People go, man, you must really be proud of what happened. I said, no, you know what, really? The truth of it is, I'm really more like, what the heck happened? I don't know how it happened. How did God do this? For the first seven years of this church, I couldn't even get out of bed half the time. I couldn't even get out of bed to, to, to go to the bathroom. That's how bad I was crippling, par, par, paralyzing back pain. So what happened to Kensington, I couldn't take any proud. You know, I couldn't be like, yeah, I'm, I'm probably one of the greatest leaders in the world. You want to follow me? You know, I can't even stand up straight for years. And God was saying, Steve, I just wanted to do it that way so you know you couldn't take any credit for it. It didn't have anything to do with you. It was all me. What you brought to the table was just a lot of weakness. I'm like, cool, I can do that. I'm good at being weak. I've got high skills and high marks and weakness. And Paul is saying, my grace is enough for you, my sufficient. There's two words. Grace, of course, you know, which is, the, which is really holds all the message of the gospel of Jesus. It's his loving kindness. It's his dying in our place. It's his going to the cross when we deserved it. It's him rising again from the dead to defeat death forever. It's his favor and affection for us. It's all of that rolled into one. And it's his grace that's always there, no matter how dark it is. But here's the surprising word. The word sufficient is literally translated to be possessed of unfailing strength. Really, I don't know why they didn't translate it this way, but he's really saying, Jesus is saying, my grace is unfailingly more than powerful enough to take care of your life. Like it's, you think, well, it's sufficient. You say, uh, is that enough sugar in your tea? Oh, that's sufficient. What are you saying? It's, that's enough. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, it's this much. It's like when my kids were little, I, I put the girls to bed, and we were, we were, this is when we were living in a 900-square-foot house with four kids. We moved out of there because Paula said it was either that or go to the mental hospital, her mental health, Seriously. And the three girls were in one bedroom, and every night I would go. I'd say, hey, so, so how much does Daddy love you? And they'd all go. <laughs> they just think that was so funny. I love that. I don't, I, don't worry, I don't know if I heard this or if I made this up myself. I don't know. Does Daddy, so does Daddy love you this much? What do you think? Love you this much? Yeah. <laughs> does he love you this much? 
Is, is my love this sufficient? Come on. And then finally, we'd all end up, we'd always end the night with, Daddy loves you this much. You reach as far as you can. And Jesus is saying, in your weakness, my grace is this much. You're hurting and you're struggling and you're, you, you're at wit's end. And Jesus is saying, I am more than powerful enough to love you. And even in the worst times when you can't see the next step ahead in the dark, I'm with you and I'm enough. I'm more than enough. I just love that. So lean into him. Lean into his weakness. And then, so then Paul gets, this really gets wild. Paul just, sometimes Paul just goes on a riff and he's like, whoa. See, he's like, he's talking and writing. Whoa, come back. Yeah, whatever. That's weird. <laughs> he goes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Are you kidding me? Who does that? So I'm going to, yeah, I got a speeding ticket this week. It's going 120 and a 30. And uh, yeah, I haven't paid my taxes in 12 years. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, my kids hate me. What, are you going to boast on all the things that are bad about Nobody does that. Paul's saying, I'm going to boast about my, my, my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. In other words, if you don't have weaknesses, you don't need the power of Christ. You got it yourself. I, I still know so many people in my life, they don't need Jesus. They, they still got it until they don't. He goes on in verse 10. That's where I, for Christ's sake, I delight. That word delight's weird. Wait till I explain that to you. In weaknesses, I delight in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. This is just the wildest of conversations. This word delight, by the way, the word boast means to glory in something. It's literally saying, this is the best part of me. So when I look back on my life, you know what I have to say? 20 years of chronic back pain and the seven years where half the time I couldn't even get out of bed. You know what, that's, you know what that was? It's the best part of my life. Because it taught me to be weak. Five years, my wife didn't want to be married to me because I'd been so committed to the work of God and too busy and too important in those years where we didn't know if we were going to make it or not. That's what I'm going to boast about because that's where I learned how dependent I was on Jesus Christ and what a cruddy husband I'd been. And for the years when my girls were rebellious and a lot of it was my fault, and I felt nothing but failure at times as a father. I'm going to boast about that. Hmm, aren't you impressed with me? No. You're looking at me going, you know exactly how I feel. Because you feel too. And it was in those moments where I cried out, Jesus, I got nothing left. I tried every trick in my bag. And I need you. Be strong for me. Be strong in me. This is what the church was meant to be for each other, you guys. This is the most beautiful thing in the world. And that's why he finishes it in verse 10. This is the end. He says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
This word then, I should have highlighted the word then because the word then is the hinge word. It means literally you are not going to get to strong. Okay, you self-sufficient, all you self-sufficient dudes out there, Paul's saying you don't get to strong until you begin with weak. That's why I've known so many men in my life who are strong and self-sufficient and then their life crumbles. And they're the most crumbly of people. Like everything crumbles. It isn't just that one thing crumbles. Oh, God, I got it all together. Da, da, da. Then it falls apart and that guy doesn't just crumble. He disintegrates. And you know what I say? Now you can start. Now you can begin. Because up until now, you're just playing games. Because when you're weak, when you begin with weak, then you can find his strength along the way. It reminds me of my life verse, John 15, 5. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So our hurts and sicknesses can be gifts that draw us to Jesus or can lead us into unremitting despair. But I believe that God wants our weakness to become our pathway to his beauty and compassion. For your mental health struggle, for those of you in this room that you know what yours is, that mental health struggle is part of God's pathway for you to be a blessing to the people of the world, to be embraced by Jesus in your weakness and to lean into his strength. So what does that mean? When I realize Jesus has leaned into me, there are three things that I know I can be to other people. I thought this is what we dream of at Kensington, to be to each other. Number one, I can lean in when it would be easier to pull away. Like Jesus could have pulled away from us. The Romans says, even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Like he could have pulled away. He's like, oh, you're my enemies? Well, forget you, you punks. Instead, he leaned in. He leaned in. The second is he didn't, uh, well, I'll just say it this way. Because of what Christ has done for me and my weakness, I can say to others, how can I help you? How can I follow through with you? How can I be there for you? And we talk about ask, listen, and respond. To be in relationships where I told you last week, and we just say to each other, tell me your story. People told me their stories last week in between services. And all week, I just thought, when you hear somebody's story, I, we're getting ready to tell you Hunter's story. It's an incredible story. But listen, and then respond, and then repeat. And then the last one is, I don't need to be the fixer. Because you know what? Jesus can do that. That's Jesus' job. I'm not the fixer, but I can be a listener. And I just, I just got to tell you, with my own family, I can't fix anything. My, my adult kids, when we're in a, have, having a conversation now and my kids are debating the issues of the world and I start to chime in, they're just like, Dad. <laughs> because they're so much smarter than me. And so I love it, the fact that I'm not in a place anymore with my kids to fix them, but man, I'm in a place to love them and encourage them and I'll be there for them. It's a beautiful thing. And man, have they responded to that so much more than fix it. That's incredible. When I stopped trying to fix it and be the know-it-all, and all of a sudden I just started loving them, oh my gosh, they're like, 
Dad, you're the greatest. I didn't hear that for a lot of years. So it's amazing the power of just doing what Jesus does with us. So let's finish this way. Hunter is, is our year in giving story this year. Remember, we do one of these for about six weeks in a row. We invite people to give towards Kensington. We've already done the offering, so we're not going to do that today. But I just want to hear of how we're investing in people's lives. And when you invest with us, it's worth your life. And I want you to seriously think about partnering with us into this next year. This is a big deal. How we finish the year is how we go. And so you're going to hear an amazing story. It's pretty intense. It's pretty hard to listen to, but it's very encouraging. And then get ready for maybe the best song, song, song encouragement of the year, okay? One of the great honors and privileges of my life here at Kensington is to have a front row seat to watch Jesus transform lives. Someone's going down one particular path and they meet Jesus and all of a sudden they start heading down another plan for their life or they're in darkness and they experience the light of Jesus and there's hope that's restored to their hearts and their minds and their souls. That's really why we exist here at Kensington, to be a community rooted in Jesus, watching Jesus work and transform lives. And so this year I invite you to make a year-end Christmas gift to Kensington. And as you do that, you know that you're investing and supporting a community that Jesus is changing lives. We're gonna watch a story right now, a new friend of mine, Hunter. And as you look at this story and listen to it, you will see the transformative power of Christ in a life. When you give, that's what we're giving to. It's an intense sadness that doesn't seem like it'll go away. It comes in waves. At its worst, I, I say it, it's like a tsunami. Around like 10, I was definitely dealing with like panic attacks on a very regular schedule. So when they first started happening, I'd have to like leave class and go to like the nurse's office at school or whatever. And I would say I had a stomachache, but I just knew like I couldn't handle being in class at that moment. I would leave and I would just lie down and have like a silent panic attack. Sophomore, junior year of high school, I started to realize I might be clinically depressed. Then I started uh, having suicidal thoughts and that's when it was concrete to me that this is an issue. There needs to be something done about it, but I still didn't do anything about it for a good amount of time, for years. For me, there was a lot of anger that came with it at myself mostly, like, why am I like this? Why? And then that just, it's just kind of like a cycle after that. Like, why am I like this? And it's just dark thoughts, not, like there's not a lot of, you can't really notice the brightness in the world, honestly. Self-harm, it's more of like a physical distraction, I guess, maybe. It gives me like an external physical pain to focus on as opposed to the the internal mental pain that I'm going through. I stayed in my mom's basement. There was, she had a wall down there and it was concrete. It was like that kind of like jagged, rough concrete. And I would just, I would punch that wall till my knuckles bled. I'd punch myself in the face in fits of like, I don't know if mania is the right word, but um, yeah, I, I would, I, yeah, I would hit myself. I'd, I'd burn myself sometimes. And then with it comes like shame because you have to hide these things. I wore long sleeves in the summer because I, I had scars. I had bruises. 
my knuckles were bloody and red and my hand was swollen all the time. So I had to hide these things. And so that with that came shame, which then made things worse. I was saying to myself that I'm gonna end my life. Yeah, and, and like I said, that really scared me. I didn't wanna worry anyone, honestly. I'm, I never wanna be a burden. So I, I think that's a part of it as well. I eventually started going to therapy. I got put on medication. And both, both of them really helped me a lot. Um, I'm not currently in therapy. I got discharged recently, earlier this year. Um, I'm not on medication either. While I was going through this, I, I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God at all. It wasn't that I didn't want to believe in God. I just really couldn't at the time. I met the love of my life, Tori. Her family was very involved in their church and they all sang there. They're all very musically talented. So I started going to her church just to see her sing. I was really adamant that that was all it was though. I, like I said, I was very stubborn with this. Um, I would always feel this like kind of this pull when I was, uh, when I was, uh, when they were doing their worship at their church. And I fought it every time I, I held back. I, I, uh, I didn't give in, I, like I said, stubborn, um, very proud. But there is, a, there is a worship night there and I don't know why, but that night I just decided give into it and I did and I just, it just washed all over me. I surrendered myself and I knew immediately what it was and I, I, knew, I knew it was Christ working in me and I, I realized that I, I, I needed him in my life. So I started going to church for church. We were like window shopping, different churches bouncing around and we landed on Kensington. Tori's sister came here, so we've just followed her. And we immediately kind of felt really connected to this place. And I felt very accepted and welcome. I was given my first Bible by Tori's sister, Colleen, and it took me a while to pick it up, honestly, because it's, it's daunting, it's a big book. Um, but eventually I did, and it made me feel closer to Christ. Worship, it's when I feel most connected. The emotions I feel, honestly, it's, just, it's overwhelming. Nothing really else matters when I'm worshiping. I don't really pay attention to those around me. I'm just paying attention to him. I was ready to make that declaration, make it known that this is, this is who I am now. I'm a follower of Christ. It felt incredible. I, people had always told me when I was leading up to this, they, they told me, you come out of the water and you feel like a different person. I was like, okay, you know. But it's, it's so completely true. Honestly, I came out of the water and I had the biggest smile on my face. I, I cried for like 15 minutes after that because I was just overwhelmed with emotion. It was a very emotional day in the best way. <laughs> it feels like home. 
people here, they care. Everyone was so excited to have me. I felt special here. It was right at the per perfect moment. I saw that as further proof of God, honestly. When it comes to depression and anxiety now, I'm definitely doing a lot better. Not that I don't struggle with it still. I mean, I was in therapy earlier this year, but I've been discharged. I'm not in therapy at the moment. I still struggle with it occasionally, but it's a lot easier now. It's a lot easier to deal with now that I have a good support system. I have healthy coping mechanisms. And I know that I have God on my side, honestly, and it just makes it a, a whole, a whole lot easier to deal with. I would tell anyone who's also struggling with mental illness that they're not alone. Um, to talk to someone, because that's the best thing I ever did for myself. I would tell them that it gets better. And I would tell those who aren't struggling with it that if they think someone they know is, to assume that they're the only ones that will help them and to step up and say something to them. Because sometimes, like myself, they won't. And so I think that would go a long way.